Section 8 of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3. The Nature of Battle. Chapters 1 to 9. Chapter 1. In September of 1915, the commander-in-chief and his staff were busy with preparations for a battle, in conjunction with the French, which had ambitious objects. These have never been stated because they were not gained, and it was the habit of our high command to conceal its objectives and minimize their importance if their hopes were unfulfilled. But beyond doubt, the purpose of the battle was to gain possession of Lens and its coal fields, and by striking through Hulk and Hen to menace the German occupation of Lille. On the British front, the key of the enemy's position was Hill 70, to the north of Lens, beyond the village of Luce, and the capture of that village and that hill was the first essential of success. The assault on these positions was to be made by two new army divisions of the 4th Corps, the 47th London Division and the 15th Scottish Division. They were to be supported by the 11th Corps, consisting of the Guards and two new and untried divisions, the 21st and the 24th. The Cavalry Corps, less the 3rd Cavalry Division under General Fanshawe, was in reserve far back at St. Paul and Pern, and the Indian Cavalry Corps under General Remington was at Doulance, to be in readiness, wrote Sir John French, to cooperate with the French cavalry in exploiting any success which might be attained by the French and British forces. Oh, wonderful optimism! In that black country of France, scattered with mining villages in which every house was a machine-gun fort, with slag-heaps and pit-heads, which were formidable redoubts, with trenches and barbed wire and brick-stacks and quarries, organized for defense in siege warfare, cavalry might as well have ridden through hell with hope of exploiting a success. Plans for effective cooperation were fully arranged between the cavalry commanders of both armies, wrote our commander-in-chief in his dispatch. I can imagine those gallant old gentlemen devising their plans, with grave courtesy over large maps, and ADCs clicking heels in attendance, and an air of immense wisdom and most cheerful assurance governing the proceedings in the salon of a French chateau. The 3rd Cavalry Division, less one brigade, was assigned to the 1st Army as a reserve, and moved into the area of the 4th Corps on the 21st and 22nd of September. Chapter 2 Movements of troops and the preparations for big events revealed to every British soldier in France the secret of the coming battle. Casualty clearing stations were ordered to make ready for big numbers of wounded. That was always one of the first signs of approaching massacre. Vast quantities of shells were being brought up to the railheads and stacked in the dumps. They were the first fruit of the speeding up of munition factories at home after the public outcry against shell shortage and the lack of high explosives. Well, at last the guns would not be starved. There was enough high explosive force available to blast the German trenches off the map. So it seemed to our innocence, though years afterwards we knew that no bombardment would destroy all earthworks such as Germans made, and that always machine guns would slash our infantry advancing over the chaos of mangled ground. Behind our lines in France, in scores of villages, 
where our men were quartered there was a sense of impending fate soldiers of the new army knew that in a little while the lessons they had learned in the school of courage would be put to a more frightful test than that of holding trenches in stationary warfare their boredom the intolerable monotony of that routine life would be broken by more sensational drama and some of them were glad of it and said let's get on with it anything rather than that deadly stagnation and others who guessed they were chosen for the coming battle and had a clear vision of what kind of things would happen they knew something about the losses at Neuchâtel and Festubert, became more thoughtful than usual, deeply introspective, wondering how many days of life they had left to them. Life was good out of the line in that September of fifteen. The land of France was full of beauty, with bronzed corn stooks in the fields, and scarlet poppies in the grass and a golden sunlight on old barns and on little white churches and in orchards heavy with fruit it was good to go into the garden of a french chateau and pluck a rose and smell its sweetness and think back to england where other roses were blooming england and in a few days who could say perhaps eternal sleep somewhere near Lens. Some officers of the guards came into the garden of the little house where I lived at that time with other onlookers. It was an untidy garden, with a stretch of grass plot, too rough to be called a lawn, but with pleasant shade under the trees, and a potager with raspberries and currants on the bushes, and flower-beds where red and white roses dropped their petals. Two officers of the Scots guards, inseparable friends, came to gossip with us and read the papers and drink a little whiskey in the evenings and pick the raspberries they were not professional soldiers one of them had been a stockbroker the other something in the city they disliked the army system with an undisguised hatred and contempt they hated war with the ferocity which was only a little camouflaged by the irony and the brutality of their anecdotes of war's little comedies they took a grim delight in the humor of corpses, lice, bayonet work, and the sniping of fair-haired German boys. They laughed, almost excessively, at these attributes of warfare, and one of them used to remark, after some such anecdote, "'And once I was a little gentleman.' He was a gentleman still, with a love of nature in his heart. I saw him touch the petals of living roses with a caress of his fingertips, and with a spiritual revolt against the beastliness of this new job of his, although he was a strong, hard fellow, without weakness of sentiment. His close comrade was of more delicate fiber, a gentle soul, not made for soldiering at all, but rather for domestic life, with children about him and books. As the evenings passed in this French village, drawing him closer to Luce by the flight of time, I saw the trouble in his eyes, which he tried to hide by smiling and by courteous conversation. He was being drawn closer to Luce and farther away from the wife, who knew nothing of what that name meant to her and to him. Other officers of the guards came into the garden, grenadiers. There were two young brothers of an old family who had always sent their sons to war. They looked absurdly young when they took off their tunics and played a game of cricket with a club for a bat and a tennis ball. They were just schoolboys, but with the gravity of men who knew that life is short. 
I watched their young athletic figures, so clean-limbed, so full of grace, as they threw the ball, and had a vision of them lying mangled. An Indian prince came into the garden. It was Ranjit Sabinji, who had carried his bat to many a pavilion, where English men and women had clapped their hands to him on glorious days when there was sunlight on English lawns. He took the club and stood at the wicket, and was bowled third ball by a man who had only played cricket after your manner of Stratford at a bow. But then he found himself, handled the club like a sword, watched the ball with the falcon's eye, played with it. He was on the staff of the Indian Cavalry Corps, which was, quotes, to cooperate in exploiting any success. End of quotes. Tomorrow we move, said one of the Scots Guards officers. The colonel of the battalion came to dinner at our mess, sitting down to a white tablecloth for the last time in his life. They played a game of cards and went away earlier than usual. Two of them lingered after the colonel had gone. They drank more whiskey. We must be going, they said, but did not go. The delicate-looking man could not hide the trouble in his eyes. I shall not be killed this time, he said to a friend of mine. I shall be badly wounded. A hard man, who loved flowers, drank his fourth glass of whiskey. It's going to be damned uncomfortable, he said. I wish the filthy thing was over. Our generals will probably arrange some glorious little massacres. I know em. Well, good night, all. They went out into the darkness of the village lane. Battalions were already on the move in the night. Their steady tramp of feet beat on the hard road. Their dark figures looked like an army of ghosts. Sparks were sputtering out of the funnels of army cookers. A British soldier in full field kit was kissing a woman in the shadow world of an estaminet. I passed close to them, almost touching them before I was aware of their presence. Bon chance, said the woman. Quand tu reviens, one more kiss, lassie, said the man. Mon comte tu es gourmand, toi. He kissed her savagely, hungrily. Then he lurched off the sidewalk and formed up with other men in the darkness. The Scots guards moved next morning. I sat by the side of the colonel, who was in a gruff mood. It looks like rain, he said, sniffing the air. It will probably rain like hell when the battle begins. I think he was killed somewhere by Foss eight. The two comrades in the Scots guards were badly wounded. One of the young brothers was killed, and the other maimed. I found their names in the casualty lists, which filled columns of the Times for a long time after Luce. Chapter 3 The town of Bethune was the capital of our army in the black country of the French coal-fields. It was not much shelled in those days, though afterwards, years afterwards, it was badly damaged by long-range guns, so that its people fled at last after living so long on the edge of war. Its people were friendly to our men and did not raise their prices exorbitantly. There were good shops in the town, as good as Paris, said soldiers who had never been to Paris, but found these plate-glass windows dazzling after trench life, and loved to see the mamzelles behind the counters and walking out smartly with little high-heeled shoes. There were tea-shops, crowded always with officers on their way to the line or just out of it, and they liked to speak French with the girls who served them. Those girls saw the hunger in those men's eyes, who watched every movement they made, who tried to touch their hands and their frocks in passing. 
they knew they were desired as daughters of eve by boys who were starved of love they took that as part of their business distributing cakes and buns without favor with laughter in their eyes and a merry word or two now and then when they had leisure they retired to inner rooms divided by curtains from the shop and sat on the knees of young british soldiers while others played ragtime or sentimental ballads on untuned pianos there was champagne as well as tea to be had in these bun shops but the apm was down on disorder or riotous gaiety and there were no orgies pas d'orgies said the young ladies severely when things were getting a little too lively they had to think of their business down side streets here and there were houses where other women lived not so severe in their point of view their business indeed did not permit of severity and they catered for the hunger of men exiled year after year from their own home life and from decent womanhood they gave the base counterfeit of love in return for a few francs and there were long lines of men english irish and scottish soldiers who waited their turn to get that vile imitation of life's romance from women who were bought and paid for our men paid a higher price than a few francs for the circe's cup of pleasure which changed them into swine for a while until the spell passed and would have blasted their souls if god were not understanding of human weakness and of war they paid in their bodies if not in their souls those boys of ours who loved life and beauty and gentle things and lived in filth and shell-fire and were trained to kill and knew that death was hunting for them and had all the odds of luck their children and their children's children will pay also for the sins of their fathers by rickety limbs and water on the brain and madness and tuberculosis and other evils which were the wages of sin which flourished most rankly behind the fields of war the inhabitants of bethune the shopkeepers the brave little families of france and bright-eyed girls and frowsy women and heroines and harlots came out into the streets before the battle of luce and watched the british army pouring through battalions of londoners and scots in full fighting kit with hot sweat on their faces and grim eyes and endless columns of field guns and limberers drawn by hard-mouthed mules cursed and thrashed by their drivers in ambulances empty now and wagons and motor lorries hour after hour day after day bon chance cried the women waving hands and handkerchiefs les pauvres enfants said the old women wiping their eyes on dirty aprons we know how it is they will be shot to pieces it is always like that in this sacred war oh those sacred pigs of germans those dirty boches those sacred bandits they're going to give the boche a hard knock said grizzled men who remembered in their boyhood another war the english army is ready how splendid they are those boys and ours are on the right of them this time mother of god hark at the guns at night as dark fell the people of bethune gathered in the great square by the hotel de ville which afterward was smashed and listened to the laboring of the guns over there by Bermel and neu la mine and granet and beyond notre dame de lorette where the french guns were at work there were loud earth-shaking rumblings and now and then enormous concussions in the night sky lights rose in long spreading bars of ruddy luminance in single flashes 
in sudden torches of scarlet flame rising to the clouds and touching them with rosy feathers. nom de Dieu, said French peasants on the edge of all that, in villages like Gouet, Servin, Houchin, Houdin, Grenet, Bruay, and Perne. The cauldron is boiling up. There will be a fine pot de feu. They wondered if their own sons would be in the broth. Some of them knew, and crossed themselves by wayside shrines for the sake of their sons' souls, or in their estaminet cursed the Germans with the same old curses for having brought all of this woe into the world. Chapter 4 In those villages, Houchan, Houdan, Lillard, and others, on the edge of the black country, the Scottish troops of the 15th Division were in training for the arena, practicing attacks on trenches and villages, getting a fine edge of efficiency onto bayonet work and bombing, and having their morale heightened by addresses from brigadiers and divisional commanders on the glorious privilege which was about to be theirs of leading the assault, and on the joys as well as the duty of killing Germans. In one battalion of Scots, the 10th Gordons, who were afterward the 8th Tenth, there were conferences of company commanders and whispered consultations of subalterns. They were Kitchener men, from Edinburgh and Aberdeen, and other towns in the north. I came to know them all after this battle, and gave them fancy names in my dispatches. The Georgian gentleman, as handsome as Beau Brummel, and a gallant soldier, who was several times wounded, but came back to command his own battalion, and then was wounded again nigh unto death, came back again, and honest John, slow of speech, with a twinkle in his eyes, careless of shell-splinters flying around his bullet head, hard and tough and cunning in war, and little Ginger, with his whimsical face and freckles, and love of pretty girls and all children, until he was killed in Flanders, and the permanent temporary lieutenant, who fell on the Somme, and the giant, who had a splinter through his brain beyond Arras and many other highland gentlemen, and one English padre who went with them always to the trenches, until a shell took his head off at the crossroads. It was the first big attack of the 15th Division. They were determined to go fast and go far. Their pride of race was stronger than the strain on their nerves. Many of them, I am certain, had no sense of fear, no apprehension of death or wounds. Excitement, the comradeship of courage, the rivalry of battalions, lifted them above anxiety before the battle began, though here and there men like Ginger, of more delicate fiber, of imagination as well as courage, must have stared in great moments at the grisly specter toward whom they would soon be walking. In other villages were battalions of the 47th London Division. They, too, were to be in the first line of attack on the right of the Scots. They, too, had to win honor for the new army and old London. They were a different crowd from the Scots, not so hard, not so steel-nerved, with more sensibility to suffering, more imagination, more instinctive revolt against the butchery that was to come. But they, too, had been doped for morale. Their nervous tension had been tightened up by speeches addressed to their spirit and tradition. It was to be London's day out. They were to fight for the glory of the old town. 
the old town where they had lived in little suburban houses with flower gardens where they had gone up by the early morning trains to city offices and government offices and warehouses and shops in days before they ever guessed they would go a-soldiering and crouch in shell holes under high explosives and thrust sharp steel into german bowels but they would do their best they would go through with it they would keep their sense of humor and make cockney jokes at death they would show the stuff of london pride domine dirige nos i knew many of those young londoners i had sat in tea-shops with them when they were playing dominoes before the war as though that were the most important game in life and i had met one of them at a fancy dress ball in the albert hall when he was sir walter raleigh and i was richard sheridan then we were both onlookers of life chroniclers of passing history i remained the onlooker even in war but my friend went into the arena he was a royal fusilier and the old way of life became a dream to him when he walked toward luce and afterwards sat in shell craters in the somme fields and knew that death would find him as it did in flanders i had played chess with one man whom afterward i met as a gunner officer at enail near arras on an afternoon when a shell had killed three of his men bathing in a tank and other shells had made a mess of blood and flesh in his wagon lines we both wore steel hats and he was the first to recognize a face from the world of peace after his greeting he swore frightful oaths cursing the war and the staff his nerves were all jangled there was another officer in the forty seventh london division whom i had known as a boy he was only nineteen when he enlisted not twenty when he had fought through several battles he and hundreds like him had been playing at red indians in kensington gardens a few years before in august in nineteen fourteen the forty seventh london division going forward to the battle of luce was made up of men whose souls had been shaped by all the influences of environment habit and tradition in which i had been born and bred their cradle had been rocked to the murmurous roar of london traffic their first adventures had been on london commons the lights along the embankment and excitement of the streets the faces of london crowds royal pageantry marriages crownings burials on the way to westminster the little dramas of london life had been woven into the fibre of their thoughts and it was the spirit of london which went with them wherever they walked in france or flanders more sensitive than countrymen to the things they saw some of them had to fight against their nerves on the way to luce but their spirit was exalted by a nervous stimulus before the battle so that they did freakish and fantastic things of courage chapter five i watched the preliminary bombardment of the loose battlefields from a black slag heap beyond nulemine and afterward went on the battleground up to the loose redoubt where our guns and the enemy's were hard at work and later still in years that followed when there was never a stillness of guns in those fields came to know the ground from many points of view it was a hideous territory this black country between lons and hulluc from the flat country beyond the distant ridges of notre dame de lorette and vimy there rose a number of high black cones made by the refuse of the coal mines which were called fosses around those black mounds there was great slaughter as at fosse eight and fosse ten 
and puit quatorzeby and the double crassier near luce because they gave observation and were important to capture or hold near them were the pitheads with winding gear in elevated towers of steel which were smashed and twisted by gunfire and in luce itself were two of those towers joined by steel girders and gantries called the tower bridge by men of london rows of red cottages where the french miners had lived were called courants and where they were grouped into large units they were called sites like the site saint auguste and site saint pierre and the site saint laurent beyond hill seventy on the outskirts of lens all those places were abandoned now by black-grimed men who had fled down mine-shafts and galleries with their women and children and had come up on our side of the lines at Neuilly-les-Mines or Bouet or bully garnet where they still live close to the war shells pierced the roof of the church in that squalid village of Neuilly-les-Mines and smashed some of the cottages and killed some of the people now and then later in the war when aircraft dropped bombs at night a new peril overshadowed them with terror and they lived in their cellars after dusk and sometimes were buried there but they would not retreat farther back not many of them and on days of battle i saw groups of french miners and dirty bloused girls excited by the passage of our troops and by the walking wounded who came stumbling back and by stretcher cases unloaded from ambulances to the floors of their dirty cottages high velocities fell in some of the streets shrapnel shells whined overhead and burst like thunderclaps young hooligans of france slouched around with their hands in their pockets talking to our men in a queer lingua franca grimacing at those noises if they did not come too near i saw lightly wounded girls among them with bandaged heads and hands but they did not think that a reason for escape with smoothly braided hair they gathered round british soldiers in steel hats and clasped their arms or leaned against their shoulders they had known many of those men before they were their sweethearts in those foul little mining towns the british troops had liked their billets because of the girls there london boys and scots kept company with pretty slatterns who stole their badges for keepsakes and taught them a base patois of french and had a smudge of tears on their cheeks when the boys went away for a spell in the ditches of death they were kind-hearted little sluts with astounding courage aren't you afraid of this place i asked one of them in bouligonet when it was unhealthy there you might be killed here any minute she shrugged her shoulders je m'en fiche de la mort i don't care a damn about death i had the same answer from other girls in other places that was the mise-en-scene of the battle of Luz, those mining towns behind the lines then a maze of communication trenches entered from a place called philosophe leading up to the trench lines beyond vermeille and running northward to cambrien and gavanchy opposite hulouc han and la bassie where the enemy had his trenches and earthworks among the slag heaps the pitheads and the coran and the seat all broken by gunfire and nowhere a sign of human life above ground in which many men were hidden storms of gunfire broke loose from our batteries a week before the battle it was our first demonstration of those stores of high explosive shells which had been made by the speeding up of munition work in england 
and of a gunpower which had been growing steadily since the coming out of the new army the weather was heavy with mist and a drizzle of rain banks of smoke made a pall over the arena of war and it was stabbed and torn by the incessant flash of bursting shells i stood on the slag heap staring at this curtain of smoke hour after hour dazed by the tumult of noise and by that impenetrable veil which hid all human drama there was no movement of men to be seen no slaughter no heroic episode only through rifts in the smoke the blurred edges of slag heaps and pit heads and smoking ruins german trenches were being battered in german dugouts made into the tombs of living men german bodies tossed up with earth and stones all that was certain but invisible very boring said an officer by my side not a damn thing to be seen our men ought to have a walkover said an optimist any living german must be a gibbering idiot with shell-shock i expect they're playing cards in their dugouts said the officer who was bored even high explosives don't go down very deep it's stupendous all the same by god hark at that it seems more than human it's like some convulsion of nature there's no adventure in modern war said the bored man it's a dirty scientific business i'd kill all chemists and explosive experts our men will have an adventure enough when they go over the top at dawn hell must be a game compared with that the guns went on pounding away day after day laboring pummeling hammering like thor with his thunderbolts it was the preparation for battle no men were out of the trenches yet though some were being killed there and elsewhere at the crossroads by philosoph and outside the village of mazingarbe and the ruins of vermeille and away up by cambrian and Javanchy. the german guns were answering back intermittently but holding most of their fire until human flesh came out into the open the battle began at dawn on september twenty fifth chapter six in order to distract the enemy's attention and hold his troops away from the main battlefront subsidiary attacks were made upon the german lines as far north as belvarde farm to the east of ypres and southward to la bassie canal at Gavanchy by the troops of the second and third armies this object wrote sir john french in his dispatch quotes, was most effectively achieved end quotes it was achieved by the bloody sacrifice of many brave battalions in the third and fourteenth divisions yorkshire royal scots king's royal rifles and others and by the mirut division of the indian corps who set out to attack terrible lines without sufficient artillery support and without reserves behind them and without any chance of holding the ground they might capture it was part of the system of war they were the pawns of strategy serving a high purpose in a way that seemed to them without reason not for them was the glory of a victorious assault their job was to demonstrate by exposing their bodies to devouring fire and by attacking earthworks which they were not expected to hold here and there men of ours after their rush over no man's land under a deadly sweep of machine-gun fire flung themselves into the enemy's trenches bayoneting the germans and capturing the greater part of their first line there they lay panting among wounded and dead 
and after that shoveled up earth and burrowed to get cover from the shelling which was soon to fall on them quickly the enemy discovered their whereabouts and laid down a barrage fire which with deadly accuracy ploughed up their old front line and tossed it about on the pitchforks of bursting shells our men's bodies were mangled in that earth high explosives plunged into the midst of little groups crouching in holes and caverns of the ground and scattered their limbs living unwounded men lay under those screaming shells with the panting hearts of toads under the beat of flails wounded men crawled back over no man's land and some were blown to bits as they crawled and others got back before nightfall in the dark a general retirement was ordered to our original line in that northern sector owing to the increasing casualties under the relentless work of the german guns like ants on the move thousands of men rose from the upheaved earth and with their stomachs close to it crouching came back dragging their wounded the dead were left on the front of the third army wrote sir john french subsidiary operations of a similar nature were successfully carried out from the point of view of high generalship those holding attacks had served their purpose pretty well from the point of view of mother's sons they had been a bloody shambles without any gain the point of view depends upon the angle of vision chapter seven let me now tell the story of the main battle of Luz, as i was able to piece it together from the accounts of men in different parts of the field no man could see more than his immediate neighborhood and from the officers who survived it is a story full of the psychology of battle with many strange incidents which happened to men when their spirit was uplifted by that mingling of exultation and fear which is heroism and with queer episodes almost verging on comedy in the midst of death and agony at the end of a day of victory most ghastly failure the three attacking divisions from left to right on the line opposite the villages of Huluk and Luz were the first the fifteenth scottish and the forty-seventh london higher up opposite Huluk and hen the ninth scottish division and the seventh division were in front of the hohenzollern redoubt chalky earthworks thrust out beyond the german front-line trenches on rising ground and some chalk quarries the men of those divisions were lined up during the night in the communication trenches which had been dug by the sappers and laid with miles of telephone wire they were silent except for the chink of shovels and sidearms the shuffle of men's feet their hard breathing and occasional words of command at five thirty when the guns in all our batteries were firing at full blast with a constant scream of shells over the heads of the waiting men and when the first faint light of day stole into the sky there was a slight rain falling and the wind blew lightly from the southwest in the front-line trenches a number of men were busy with some long narrow cylinders which had been carried up a day before they were arranging them in the mud of the parapets with their nozzles facing the enemy lines that's the stuff to give em what is it poison gas worse than they used at ypres christ supposing we have to walk through it we shall walk behind it the wind will carry it down the throat of the fritzes we shall find em dead 
so men I met had talked of that new weapon which most of them hated. It was at five-thirty when the men busy with the cylinders turned on the little taps. There was a faint hissing noise, the escape of gas from many pipes. A heavy whitish cloud came out of the cylinders and traveled above ground as it was lifted and carried forward by the breeze. "'How's the gas working?' asked a Scottish officer. "'Going fine,' said an English officer, but he looked anxious, and wetted a finger and held it up to get the direction of the wind. Some of the communication trenches were crowded with the black watch of the first division, hard bronze fellows with the red heckle in their bonnets. It was before the time of steel hats. They were leaning up against the walls of the trenches, waiting. They were strung around with spades, bombs, and sacks. "'A queer kind of stink,' said one of them, sniffing. Some of the men began coughing. Others were rubbing their eyes as though they smarted. The poison gas. The wind had carried it halfway across no man's land. Then a swirl changed its course and flicked it down a gully and swept it around to the black watch in the narrow trenches. Some German shell-fire was coming, too. In one small bunch eight men fell in a mush of blood and raw flesh. But the gas was worse. There was a movement in the trenches, the huddling together of frightened men who had been very brave. They were coughing, spitting, gasping. Some of them fell limp against their fellows, with pallid cheeks which blackened. Others tied handkerchiefs about their mouths and noses, but choked inside those bandages and dropped earth with a clatter of shovels. Officers and men were cursing and groaning. An hour later, when the whistles blew, there were gaps in the line of the first division, which went over the top. In the trenches lay gassed men. In no man's land others fell, swept by machine-gun bullets, shrapnel, and high explosives. The first division was, quotes, checked. We caught it badly, said some of them I met later in the day, bandaged and bloody, and plastered in wet chalk, while gassed men lay on stretchers about them, unconscious, with laboring lungs. CHAPTER Eight. Farther south, the front lines of the 15th Scottish Division climbed over their parapets at 6.30 and saw the open ground before them and the dusky, paling sky above them and broken wire in front of the enemy's churned-up trenches. And through the smoke, faintly and far away, three and a half miles away, the ghostly outline of the Tower Bridge of Luce, which was their goal. For an hour there were steady tides of men all streaming slowly up those narrow communication ways, cut through the chalk to get into the light also where death was in ambush for many of them somewhere in the shadows of that dawn. By 7.40 the two assaulting brigades of the 15th Division had left the trenches and were in the open. Shriller than the scream of shells above them was the skirl of pipes going with them. The pipe major of the Eighth Gordons was badly wounded, but refused to be touched until the other men were tended. He was a giant, too big for a stretcher, and had to be carried back on a tarpaulin. At the dressing station his leg was amputated, but he died after two operations, and the Gordons mourned him. While the Highlanders went forward with their pipes, two brigades of the Londoners on their right were advancing in the direction of the long double slag heap southwest of Luce called the Double Crossier. 
Some of them were blowing mouth-organs, playing the music-hall song of Hello, Hello, It's a Different Girl Again, and Robert E. Lee, until one after another a musician fell in a crumpled heap. Shrapnel burst over them, and here and there shells plowed up the earth where they were trudging. On the right of the Londoners, the French still stayed in their trenches. Their own attack was postponed until midday, and they cheered the London men as they moved forward with cries of Vive les Anglais! A mort les Boches! It was they who saw one man kicking a football in advance of the others. He is mad, they said. The poor boy is a lunatic. He is not mad, said the French officer who had lived in England. It is a beau geste. He is a sportsman, scornful of death. That is the British sport. It was a London Irishman dribbling a football toward the goal, and he held it for fourteen hundred yards, the best-kicked goal in history. Many men fell in the five hundred yards of no-man's land, but they were not missed then by those who went on in waves, rather like molecules separating, collecting, splitting up into smaller groups, bunching together again on the way to the first line of German trenches. A glint of bayonets made a quick-set hedge along the line of churned-up earth which had been the Germans' front-line trench. Our guns had cut the wire or torn gaps into it. Through the broken strands went the Londoners on the right, the Scots on the left, shouting hoarsely now. They saw red. They were hunters of human flesh. They swarmed down into the first long ditch, trampling over dead bodies, falling over them, clawing the earth and scrambling up the parados, all broken and crumbled, then on again to another ditch. Boys dropped with bullets in their brains, throats and bodies. German machine-guns were at work at close range. "'Give em hell!' said an officer of the Londoners, a boy of nineteen. There were a lot of living Germans in the second ditch, and in holes about. Some of them stood still, as though turned to clay, until they fell with half the length of a bayonet through their stomachs. Others shrieked and ran a little way before they died. Others sat behind hillocks of earth, spraying our men with machine-gun bullets until bombs were hurled on them and they were scattered into lumps of flesh. Three lines of trench were taken, and the Londoners and the Scots went forward again in a spate toward Luce. All the way from our old lines men were streaming up, with shells bursting among them or near them. On the way to Luce a company of Scots came face to face with a tall German. He was stone dead, with a bullet in his brain, his face all blackened with the grime of battle, but he stood erect in the path, wedged somehow in a bit of trench. The Scots stared at this figure, and their line parted and swept each side of him, as though some obscene specter barred the way. Rank after rank streamed up, and then a big tide of men poured through the German trench systems and rushed forward. Three-quarters of a mile more to loose. Some of them were panting, out of breath, speechless. Others talked to the men about them in stray sentences. Most of them were silent, staring ahead of them and licking their lips with swollen tongues. They were parched with thirst, some of them told me. Many stopped to drink the last drop out of their water bottles. As one man drank, he spun round and fell with a thud on his face. Machine-gun bullets were whipping up the earth. From loose came a loud and constant rattle of machine-guns. Machine-guns were firing out of the broken windows of the houses and from the top of the tower bridge, those steel girders which rose three hundred feet high from the center of the village, and from slit trenches across the narrow streets. 
there were one hundred machine-guns in the cemetery to the southwest of the town pouring out lead upon the londoners who had to pass that place scots and london men were mixed up and mingled in crowds which encircled loose and forced their way into the village but roughly still and in the mass they were scots who assaulted loose itself and london men who went south of it to the chalk pits and the double crossier it was eight o'clock in the morning when the first crowds reached the village and for nearly two hours afterward there was street fighting it was the fighting of men in the open armed with bayonets rifles and bombs against men invisible and in hiding with machine-guns small groups of scots like packs of wolves prowled around the houses where the lower rooms and cellars were crammed with germans trapped and terrified but still defending themselves in some of the houses they would not surrender afraid of certain death anyhow and kept the scots at bay a while until those kilted men flung themselves in and killed their enemy to the last man outside those red brick houses lay dead and wounded scots inside there were the curses and screams of a bloody vengeance in other houses the machine-gun garrison ceased fire and put white rags to the broken windows and surrendered like sheep so it was in one house entered by a little kilted signaller who shot down three men who tried to kill him thirty others held their hands up and said in a chorus of fear comrade comrade a company of the eighth gordons were among the first into Luce, led by some of those highland officers i have mentioned on another page it was honest john who led one crowd of them and he claims now with a laugh that he gained his military cross for saving the lives of two hundred germans i ought to have got the royal humane society's medal he said those germans poles really from silesia came swarming out of a house with their hands up but the gordons had tasted blood they were hungry for it they were panting and shouting with red bayonets behind their officer that young man thought deeply and quickly if there were no quarter it might be ugly for the gordons later in the day and the day was young and loose was still untaken he stood facing his men ordered them sternly to keep steady these men were to be taken prisoners and sent back under escort he had his revolver handy and anyhow the men knew him they obeyed grumbling sullenly there was the noise of fire in other parts of the village and the tap 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 of machine-guns from many cellars bombing parties of scots silenced those machine-gunners at last by going to the head of the stairways and flinging down their hand-grenades the cellars of loose were full of dead in one of them hours after the fighting had ceased among the ruins of the village and the line of fire was forward of hill seventy a living man still hid and carried on his work the colonel of one of our forward battalions came into loose with the signallers and runners and established his headquarters in a house almost untouched by shell-fire at the time there was very little shelling as the artillery officers on either side were afraid of killing their own men and the house seemed fairly safe for the purpose of a temporary signal station but the colonel noticed that shortly after his arrival heavy shells began to fall very close and the germans obviously were aiming directly for this building he ordered the cellars to be searched and three germans were found it was only after he had been in the house for forty minutes that in a deeper cellar which had not been seen before the discovery was made of a german officer who was telephoning to his own batteries and directing their fire suspecting that the colonel and his companions were important officers directing general operations 
he had caused the shells to fall upon the house knowing that a lucky shot would mean his own death as well as theirs as our searchers came into the cellar he rose and stood there waiting with a cold dignity for the fate which he knew would come to him as it did he was a very brave man another german officer remained hiding in the church which was so heavily mined that it would have blown half the village into dust and ashes if he had touched off the charges he was fumbling at the job when our men found and killed him in the southern outskirts of Luce and in the cemetery the Londoners had a bloody fight among the tombstones, where nests of German machine-guns had been built into the vaults. New corpses, still bleeding, lay among old dead, torn from their coffins by shell-fire. Londoners and Silesian Germans lay together across one another's bodies. The London men routed out most of the machine-gunners and bayoneted some and took prisoners of others. They were not so fierce as the Scots, but in those hours forgot the flower gardens in Stratum and Tooting Beck and the manners of suburban drawing-rooms. It is strange that one German machine-gun, served by four men, remained hidden behind a gravestone all through that day and Saturday and Sunday, and sniped stray men of ours until routed at last by moppers-up of the guards' brigade. As the Londoners came down the slope to the southern edge of Luce village, through a thick haze of smoke from shell-fire and burning houses they were astounded to meet a crowd of civilians mostly women and children who came streaming across the open in panic-stricken groups some of them fell under machine-gun fire snapping from the houses or under shrapnel bursting overhead the women were haggard and gaunt with wild eyes and wild hair like witches they held their children in tight claws until they were near our soldiers when they all set up a shrill crying and wailing. The children were dazed with terror. Other civilians crawled up from their cellars in loose, spattered with German blood, and wandered about among soldiers of many British battalions, who crowded amid the scarred and shattered houses, and among the wounded men who came staggering through the streets, where army doctors were giving first aid in the roadway, while shells were bursting overhead, and all the roar of the battle filled the air for miles around with infernal tumult. Isolated Germans still kept sniping from secret places, and some of them fired at a dressing station in the marketplace until a French girl, afterward decorated for valor, she was called the Lady of Luce by Londoners and Scots, borrowed a revolver and shot two of them dead in a neighboring house. Then she came back to the soup she was making for wounded men, some of the German prisoners were impressed as stretcher-bearers, and one, Jock, had compelled four Germans to carry him in while he lay talking to them in broadest Scots, grinning despite his blood and wounds. A London lieutenant called out to a stretcher-bearer, helping to carry down a German officer, and was astounded to be greeted by the wounded man. "'Hello, Leslie. I knew we should meet one day.' Looking at the man's face, the Londoner saw it was his own cousin. There was all the drama of war in that dirty village of Luce, which reeked with the smell of death then and years later, when I went walking through it on another day of war, after another battle on Hill 70 beyond. CHAPTER Nine. While the village of Luce was crowded with hunters of men, wounded, dead, batches of panic-stricken prisoners women doctors highlanders and lowlanders 
fay with the intoxication of blood london soldiers with tattered uniforms and muddy rifles and stained bayonets mixed brigades were moving forward to new objectives the orders of the scottish troops which i saw were to go all out and to press on as far as they could with the absolute assurance that all the ground they gained would be held behind them by supporting troops and having that promise they trudged on to hill seventy the londoners had been ordered to make a defensive flank on the right of the scots by capturing the chalk pit south of loose and digging in they did this after savage fighting in the pit where they banded many germans though raked by machine-gun bullets from a neighboring copse which was a fringe of gashed and tattered trees but some of the london boys were mixed up with the advancing scots and went on with them and a battalion of scots fusiliers who had been in the supporting brigade of the fifteenth division which was intended to follow the advance joined the first assault either through eagerness or a wrong order and unknown to their brigadier were among the leaders in the bloody struggle in loose and labored on to hill seventy where camerons and gordons black watch seaforths argyle and sutherland men and londoners were now up the slopes stabbing stray germans who were trying to retreat to a redoubt on the reverse side of the hill for a time there was a kind of bank holiday crowd on hill seventy the german gunners knowing that the redoubt on the crest was still held by their own men dared not fire and many german batteries were on the move out of lens and from their secret lairs in the country thereabouts in a state of panic on our right the french were fighting desperately at Souchet in neuville de saint vosat and up the lower slopes of vimy suffering horrible casualties and failing to gain the heights in spite of the reckless valor of their men but alarming the german staffs who for a time had lost touch with the situation their telephones had been destroyed by gunfire and were filled with gloomy apprehensions so hill seventy was quiet except for spasms of machine-gun fire from the redoubt on the german side of the slope and the bombing of german dugouts or the bayonetting of single men routed out from holes in the earth one of our men came face to face with four germans two of whom were armed with rifles and two with bombs they were standing in the wreckage of a trench pallid and with the fear of death in their eyes the rifles clattered to the earth the bombs fell at their feet and their hands went up when the young scot appeared before them with his bayonet down he was alone and they could have killed him but surrendered and were glad of the life he granted them as more men came up the slope there were greetings between comrades of hello jacques is that you alf they were rummaging about for souvenirs in the half-destroyed dugouts where dead bodies lay they were swapping souvenirs taken from prisoners silver watches tobacco boxes revolvers compasses many of them put on german field caps like schoolboys with paper caps from christmas crackers shouting with laughter because of their german look they thought the battle was won after the first wild rush the shell fire the killing the sight of dead comrades the smell of blood the nightmare of that hour after dawn they were beginning to get normal again to be conscious of themselves to rejoice in their luck at having got so far with whole skins it had been a fine victory the enemy was nowhere he had mizzled off some of the scots with the hunter's instinct still strong 
decided to go on still farther to a new objective. They straggled away in batches to one of the suburbs of Mons, the Cite Saint-Auguste. Very few of them came back with a tale of their comrades' slaughter by sudden bursts of machine-gun fire, which cut off all chance of retreat. The quietude of Hill 70 was broken by the beginning of a new bombardment from German guns. "'Dig in,' said the officers. "'We must hold on at all costs until the supports come up.' Where were the supporting troops which had been promised? There was no sign of them coming forward from Luce. The Scots were strangely isolated on the slopes of Hill 70. At night the sky above them was lit up by the red glow of fires in Lens, and at twelve-thirty that night, under that ruddy sky, dark figures moved on the east of the hill, and a storm of machine-gun bullets swept down on the Highlanders and the Lowlanders, who crouched low in the mangled earth. It was a counter-attack by masses of men crawling up to the crest from the reverse side and trying to get the Scots out of the slopes below. But the men of the 15th Division answered by volleys of rifle fire, machine-gun fire, and bombs. They held on in spite of dead and wounded men thinning out their fighting strength. At 5.30 in the morning there was another strong counter-attack, repulsed also, but at another price of life in those holes and ditches on the hillside. The Scottish officers stared anxiously back toward their old lines. Where were the supports? Why did they get no help? Why were they left clinging like this to an isolated hill? The German artillery had reorganized. They were barraging the ground about loose fiercely and continuously. They were covering a great stretch of country up to Hullock and north of it with intense harassing fire. Later on that Saturday morning, the 15th Division received orders to attack and capture the German earthwork redoubt on the crest of the hill. A brigade of the 21st Division was nominally in support of them, but only small groups of that brigade appeared on the scene. A few white-faced officers, savage with anger, almost mad with some despair in them, with batches of English lads who looked famished with hunger, weak after long marching, demoralized by some tragedy that had happened to them. They were Scots who did most of the work in trying to capture the redoubt, the same Scots who had fought through Luce. They tried to reach the crest. Again and again they crawled forward and up, but the blasts of machine-gun fire mowed them down, and many young Scots lay motionless on those chalky slopes, with their kilts riddled with bullets. Others, hit in the head or arms or legs, writhed like snakes back to the cover of broken trenches. "'Where are the supports?' asked the Scottish officers. "'In God's name, where are the troops who were to follow on? Why?' Did we do all this bloody fighting to be hung up in the air like this? The answer to their question was not given in any official dispatch. It is answered by the tragedy of the 21st and 24th Divisions, who will never forget the misery of that day, though not many are now alive who suffered it. Their part of the battle I will tell later. End of Section 8